Good morning. I'm sure my wife appreciates that I'm the one reading this, by the way. Honey, I'm not making this up. Word of God. Uh, first reading is from the uh, first book of Corinthians, first letter of the Corinthians. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives, gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Second reading is from Genesis chapter 2. The Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the final reading is from Genesis chapter 3. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. But when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. We're now in the fifth and final week of this marriage sermon series we've been in to have and to hold. And I want to spend this last week a little bit differently than I promised we were going to last Sunday. Last Sunday we talked about the the average wife's top unmet needs and I said that we were going to talk about the average husband's top unmet needs this Sunday, and I, I don't want to do that. I want to. We only have one week left, so instead, I want to spend all of our time talking about sex. And I, what I want to convince you is that this is a far bigger deal than you have ever before believed. So you'll hear sometimes cultural commentators, Christian and non, say, uh, you know, our, our culture makes far far too big a deal of sex. It's not true. It's almost impossible to make too big a deal of sex. Our culture gets it wrong, but the idea that we make too big a deal of it is not true at all. We, we don't make a big enough deal of it. And I want to convince you that to whatever extent your sex life with your spouse falls short of being mutually satisfying, falls short of God's design, uh, A, that is something that can be fixed, and B, you must fix it. You have to fix it. It is of paramount importance. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, four sections, four propositions, four assertions, which are all a full sentence long, so I'm not going to give them to you up front. I'm just going to give them to you one at a time as we go. And we'll put them up on the screen so you can follow along. So starting with number one, first, sexual intimacy is the highest, purest, cleanest, holiest, deepest truest form of intimacy. Let me say that again. Sexual intimacy is the highest, purest, cleanest, holiest, deepest, truest form 
of intimacy. So a little bit of a review here. We, we already talked about this a couple weeks ago, but I want to hit it again for those of you who weren't here. We talked about how Plato, the philosopher, his ideal love was non-sexual love. So that's the highest, purest form of love. And, and he basically won the day. Plato won. So platonic, a platonic relationship, a non-sexual relationship is kind of considered the, the highest type of love, the cleanest type of love. Uh, David Brooks, a couple of years ago, just as an example of this, had a column where he was talking about this uh, one, one night encounter between Isaiah Berlin, the philosopher, and uh, this Russian poet. And they just met this one time, uh, introduced by a friend, and they, they stayed up all night talking. And so he says this. Brooks says, the, the night stands as the beau ideal of a certain sort of bond. There was such harmony that all the inner defenses fell down in one night. If you read the poems that Akhmatova, that's the poet, that she wrote about that night, you get the impression that they slept together, but actually they barely touched. Their communion was primarily intellectual, emotional, and spiritual, creating a combination of friendship and love. And we just can't let go of this idea. Christians in particular, we're just, we're just so enchanted by this non-sexual love. And it's been this way since Plato. It's also been this way since the very earliest days of the church. So the, the passage that we started with this morning, where Paul says to the church at Corinth, uh, you need to be having sex frequently. Well, why is that in the Bible? Why does Paul write a letter to the church at Corinth saying that? What scholars have, have figured out decisively is that the reason he says that is because he got a letter from the church at Corinth. And they said, hey, now that we're Christians, we've figured out that we don't need to have sex anymore. It's always been this way, that people have felt like sex is lower. And that as you become more intellectually exalted, as you become more spiritually exalted, you don't need this old, base, low, animal side of yourself anymore. You can kind of graduate from that. And Paul says, no, that's not how it works. It's not how it is. And instead of, in Scripture, instead of, like Plato says, sex being low and lesser, in Scripture, sexual love and sexual intimacy is actually exalted as the highest kind of love. So let me, let me read you something else. From Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this. He says, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he's talking there about Genesis. And then he says, this is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. In other words, sexual intimacy is an image of, a metaphor for uh, spiritual intimacy, the intimacy between God and his people. And Paul didn't make this up. This is all through the Old Testament. When God reaches for an image of what his relationship with us is like, he always goes sexual, or he often goes sexual. So let me read you this from Hosea chapter 2. This is God uh, talking about his relationship with his people, with Israel. He says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. This is God talking. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And that word know there, you shall know the Lord. You probably know if you read a literal translation of the Bible, uh, every time it's talking about sex, it uses the word know. And Adam knew his wife. 
Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to a child. Well, what's the word know in this passage mean? It's not talking about cognitive knowledge. And you say, so are you saying we have sex with God? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that sexuality and spirituality are cut of the same cloth. They're the two closest things to each other. You know, we almost think of them like opposites, like, you know, sex and church, Saturday night and Sunday morning. Like, they couldn't be farther apart. And in Scripture, they're, they're one and the same. So what this goes to is, you know, sometimes you will hear women say, like, you know, all men care about is sex. Like, it's this, like, insult. You know, like, we care about more exalted things, you know, more mature things, like conversation and romance and, and love. And the Bible, all men care about is sex. So, you, according to Scripture, then you're saying all men care about is the highest form of intimacy. You know, the, the, for men to say the point of a relationship is, is sex. So the point of a relationship for men is the relationship. The point of the relationship for a man is this, the, the closest bond you can have, that, that God exalts to the highest place. There's nothing low. There's nothing dirty. There's nothing lesser about sex. It's the highest form of intimacy there is. That's the first point of the sermon. Point number two. Sex is the central and foundational feature of marriage. Sex is the central and foundational feature of marriage. So because we've been so trained that that sex is somehow lower, even if you grant the first point that, okay, sex isn't dirty, sex is good, God created it, what people will still try to do is they'll still try to, to wiggle out of kind of the centrality of it. And they'll say, okay, fine, so sex is good, but the way it works is in marriage, the way sex works in marriage is, you figure everything else out. You know, you kind of get everything aligned, communication and, and romance and everything else. And then when you do that, then kind of sex happens naturally. Great sex happens naturally, and it's like the icing on the cake. And that's just not true. Sex is not the icing on the cake. It's the cake. The, put differently, it's not, sex is not dessert. It's dinner. You know, you, dessert you can skip. You go to the restaurant, oh, I don't think we're going to have dessert tonight. You don't go to the restaurant and say, well, let's just not eat. You know, let's, let's order a couple of Diet Cokes and we'll just sit here and not have dinner. Because the point of going to a restaurant is to eat. And the point of being married is to have sex. If you have a marriage without sex, you have a pointless marriage. It is central and it is foundational. And the way, the easy, logical way you can figure that out, you know, to, to act like sex is like a small side part of marriage so you ask to marry, let's say, you know, you, you're raised by wolves and you have no idea about human institutions. And you say, well, what is marriage? You know, what is this thing? You know, you ask a husband and wife. And they're like, well, you know, we, uh, we cook, we watch TV, we take the kids to the park, we have sex, we play board games. And it's like, well, wait a minute. One of those things is not like the others, you know, because all those other things you can do with other people. And one of them you can only do with one person. It's the definition of marriage. It's the dead center of marriage, which is what you see in Genesis chapter 1 on the first page of the Bible. First page of the Bible. And what God says is, the definition of marriage, he says, the man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. We said in a prior week that one flesh uh, means more than just sexual intimacy. Well, fine, it does mean more than just sexual intimacy. It certainly doesn't mean less than sexual intimacy. 
Don't miss the fact that one flesh primarily is referring to sex. That's the main thing it's talking about. And then you see that right after the next line. It says, Adam and his wife were naked but unashamed. What is that? Again, we kind of stretched the boundaries of that phrase in a prior week and said, well, naked and unashamed, it's kind of being fully known on a soul level. Fine. But naked and unashamed primarily refers to sex. And when God is talking about marriage, when he defines marriage, and this is the definition of marriage that Jesus goes back to, and it's the definition of marriage that Paul goes back to. The definition centers upon sexual intimacy. Not only that, but then look how it flips when things start to go wrong. Because what happens next is sin enters the picture. They, de- they decide to go against God. And what is the very first thing that happens once sin comes into the world? What's the very first thing that sin affects in the world? Not just in marriage. What's the first thing that sin does, period? The very first line after they sin is they knew they were naked and they sewed loincloths to cover themselves. Sex. The first thing sin attacks is sex. They knew they were naked, this self-consciousness, this unwilling to be with one another sexually, covering up, sewing loincloths. Why? Why would sin go after sex first? We've talked about this in prior weeks. Sin's goal is to get us to believe that God is not good. If sin is going to get us to believe that God is not good, then the strategic objectives along the way to that ultimate goal are going to be take every good thing that God has given us and mess it up. And the better it is, the more strategically important it is for sin to mess it up to convince us that God is not good. So it goes after sex first because it knows if it can take out sex, if it can mess up sex, if it can, can destroy sexual intimacy, all the other dominoes will fall. And we... It's not realizing sin's game plan, not realizing what Satan's doing, take the opposite approach, which is, well, we'll fix everything else first, and then at the end, sex will be fine. Satan is far smarter. Satan goes for the jugular first. And if you want to fix your marriage, the most obvious place to start, by far, the most potent place to start, is with your sexual relationship. You have to fight fire with fire. Because, so, you know, you try to fix everything else first, all these communication problems and the things you do that drive one another crazy. Well, guess what? Two people that are having great sex with each other consistently, they tend to see their problems differently. They tend to see each other differently. It changes the entire conversation. Sex is not the icing on the cake. It is central and foundational to marriage. It's the definition of marriage. It's what it means to be Married. That's the second point of the sermon. So that takes us to number three. Third this morning, great sex takes work. Third, great sex takes work. And the reason people think that they have to fix everything else first and then kind of sex follows is because they believe that sex has to be um, spontaneous. You know, So if, if there's a lack of sexual desire for your spouse or if there's a lack of sexual satisfaction in the relationship, you feel like, well, there's nothing we can do to address that directly So we must have to just fix all this other stuff, and then that will follow as a matter of course. And and that's just not the case. You know, people believe that sex, great sex, has to be spontaneous. Why? Because that's what the devil wants you to believe. 
The devil wants you to believe that because if he can get you to believe that, then if you've got problems sexually with your spouse, well, there's nothing you can do about it. I don't know if you saw it. You probably did because everybody's been talking about it. That uh, article a couple weeks ago in the New York Times Magazine about open marriages. These couples that uh, they love each other, they've got kids together, but they just are not sexually satisfied. Either one of them or both of them are not sexually satisfied. And so they've decided, you know, we're going to uh, be honest about this, be honest with each other, even be honest with our kids, our teenagers, and just have other sexual partners. Stay married but have other sexual partners. And what reading this article did is just make me sick. I mean, it literally sickened me. Uh, But not like disgusted at the people in the article, like how could you do such a thing? What it made me sick about is sin's effectiveness at ruining our marriages by going after sex. Because that's the issue. The issue is that sex has died. And, And... in th- seeing that as a big issue, the, the couples in the article are actually right. You know, you see in the comments, some people were like, well, what's the big deal? You know, like, so you're not sexually satisfied. L- live with it. No, that's not how the Bible sees it. What uh, Scripture says, you saw Paul say, he said, make sure you're having sex frequently. Why? So that Satan won't tempt you. In other words, sex is the glue, and to the extent that you're not having sex frequently, not having mutually satisfying Sex, you're just opening the door, and it's just a matter of time. So the open marriage thing, they're open about it. They're honest about it. But it's not worse than what usually happens when sex dies in a marriage, which the vast majority of the time, one of the two partners will have an affair. It's not better just because you keep it a secret. That doesn't make it any better. And best-case scenario, best-case scenario if sexual passion dies within a marriage is that both partners just kind of suffer silently for the rest of their lives. Which I guess morally is you know more respectable, but it, it's not an ideal outcome. And what was crazy and sad to me about this article, but again makes perfect sense given sin's effectiveness in this area, is that they didn't even really try. So they would say things like, you know, we weren't satisfied. We tried to talk about it a couple of times. It didn't go very well. And so then we, you know, a couple years later said, well, why don't we try this? You know, why don't we try having different partners? Like that was somehow the easiest solution. And they didn't even really try to fix it. They didn't even really work on their sexual relationship. And the reason sex wasn't working for them is because they weren't working on sex. It takes work. There, I mean, I think for everybody, there, there are probably couples out there who for your entire married lives, you know, you just naturally just uh, can't keep your hands off one another. And if you're in that camp, I'd say, A, you're really weird, and B, we all secretly hate you. You know, that's just, it's odd. Most people are going to have to work at it. You're going to have to put in the time. You're going to have to put in the effort. And if it's not working, is that awkward and painful to to talk about that? Yeah, it's going to be one of the more awkward and painful things you ever do. But it's a lot less awkward and painful than an affair, or it's a lot less awkward and painful than having an open marriage. Is it going to be costly? Is it going to be time-consuming to go see a sex therapist and and put in all this time? Yeah, it's going to be a lot less costly and a lot less time-consuming than a divorce. 
It takes work. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes effort. It takes money to go see a counselor. And it's something that can be fixed, but you have to actually put in the effort. So that takes us to the fourth section. We're going to spend uh, a disproportionate amount of time here. The fourth assertion, which has a number of subpoints, is that the biggest obstacles to a great sex life are all surmountable. Number four, the biggest obstacles to a great sex life are all surmountable. So what we want to do with the rest of our time is just talk about what those obstacles are. Now, you, your obstacle might not be in this list. You know, that's why counseling and therapy is important. So most couples can't talk about this, just the two of them. It's just too hard. Um, so, you know, this may not address your issue, but I just want to get you thinking along the right lines. What are some of the biggest obstacles to, to satisfying, mutually satisfying sex within a marriage? So we'll talk about uh, four of them. We're going to go from the least serious to the most serious. Um, and, uh, again, we're not going to solve any of these, but I just wanted to get us thinking about them. So first, obstacle number one, the least serious is infrequency, irregularity, lack of anticipation. That's the first obstacle. Infrequency, irregularity, and lack of anticipation. And what we're talking about here is what Paul is talking about, which is you need to be having sex frequently. So what counts as frequently? We've talked about this in prior years when we've, we've talked about this subject. Uh, ideally, twice a week, at least once a week. And if it's only once a week, it needs to be good. And we're going to talk about uh, what, what good means in a minute. Um, but ideally, twice a week, at least once a week. If that's not happening, that's a problem. If that's not happening, you're asking for trouble. You're giving Satan entry into your marriage. You're just asking him to come and split you apart. And you say, well, we, what if you know, one of us doesn't feel like having sex at least once a week? Well, the question is, then, what do you mean by that? What do you mean you don't feel like it? Because it could be one of two things. On one hand, if you're talking about, so you, you try to have sex once a week, and it just it doesn't 